We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. From the files of Schlock and Awe, welcome to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. Here are your hosts, Matty Budrevich and Dave Wayne. Don't you dare touch me! Stand back! No! No! Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Natural Selection, the Creature Feature Podcast. Um, my name is Dave Wayne, and to my right, I have Matty Podrevich. Hello. Um, we have an orgy of films today, a quintet of Stan Winston-themed AIP remakes-ish, really. It's mm. not, hmm. This is a strange one, this. It's a strange one. Because these films that we're going to talk about today aren't really creature features. No. But... They fall under the banner name of Creature Features. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little strange that we've got to what episode 8 and we are only now sort of elaborating on what a Creature Feature is. But to us, the Creature Features of the uh, Millennium mm. are a very distinctive type of movie in and of themselves. Yeah. In that they're about either a giant mutated animal or something naturalistic. Mm-hmm. But these films that we're looking at today, which are uh, Stan, the Stan Winston and Lou Arkoff and Colleen Camp produced creature features, these are what other people might term creature features in the sense that they're mm. just movies with monsters in them. Yeah. But there's no real naturalistic bent to any of no, these no, no. films. No. But they are an interesting footnote in the Millennium <laughs> Creature Feature cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the films themselves are She-Creature, um, How to Make a Monster, Earth vs. the Spider, Teenage Caveman, and The Day the World Ended. So they're a bizarre uh, group of films that, yeah, their roots lie back in the 1950s with, with Sam Arkoff, mm-hmm. who was a, a legendary B-movie producer who, who made a whole slew of driving movies yeah. of this ilk. This series, the Creature Feature series, they um, were broadcast on Cinemax and mm. HBO. Yeah. Um, and So they're TV movies. Mm-hmm. They have their history in another sort of made-for-cable run of movies. So just to give a little bit of history on this, uh, back in 1994, mm. uh, Samuel Z. Arkoff's son, Lou Arkoff, yeah had teamed with Halloween's producer Deborah Hill mm-hmm. uh, to make a series of films called Rebel Highway mm. for Showtime. Rebel Highway was basically like an update of Arkoff Senior's uh, classic driving movies and the whole idea was to give them a sort of 90s twist. So you had reimaginings of all these classic 50s Arkoff B pictures like mm. uh, Road Racers, which was directed by Robert Rodriguez, yeah. who uh, replaced Wes Craven, who had uh, left the project to make New Nightmare. Mm. Uh, Motorcycle Gang by John Milius. Runaway Daughter by Joe Dante. Drag Strip Girl by Mary Lambert, and a bunch of others. Yeah. 
So the Rebel Highway series, uh, the the goal was for Lou Arkoff. This is going to get very confusing. Constantly <laughs> saying Arkoff, Lou Arkoff, and Deborah Hill. Um, they gave all the directors complete creative control to reimagine these movies how yeah. they saw fit, mm-hmm. and they'd give them. Final cut, just as long as that they came in on budget and on schedule. So yeah. they were all made for $1.3 million, and they all had to be shot in 12 days. Yeah. So Rebel Highway, movies played uh, July, August, September 1994 on Showtime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, did okay, pulled in some decent ratings and stuff. Yeah. And... Arkoff, Lou Arkoff, that is, he wanted to do more uh, AIP remakes. Yeah. Only this time he wanted to do the horror stuff. Mm. So around the turn of the millennium, about February 2000, and, February 2000, sorry, Arkoff conceptualised creature features. Mm. Uh, and he signed a pre-buy deal uh, in February 2000 with HBO, who wanted to? They were going to bankroll these movies, and they were going to play on uh, HBO and Cinemax sometime in two thousand and one. Yeah, like Rebel Highway, it was a very very simple ethos. They wanted to update several titles from Samuel Ziarkov's AIP catalogue mm. and give them a modern twist. Yeah, you know, and make them about the fears of the new millennium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, into the mix. Stan Winston got got on board mm. uh, to design the creatures uh, and just conceptualise the effects work and things like that, as well as helping to give um, the series a sort of multimedia twist. Yeah. So while these films were released, they were bringing out toys, uh, an interactive website, and it was just this whole cross-platform bit of entertainment mm-hmm. built around the idea of creature features. Um, they also got... Colleen Camp on board as another producer and she would help out with uh, casting and working with actors and things like that. Now, initially, the creature features were built around we, they were going to get established talent mm. in to make these mm. wild and wacky reimaginings. Yeah. However, uh, Winston, Arkoff and Camp decided that they wanted to go a more indie route and get uh, sort of off-the-beaten-track indie filmmakers. So you end up with this wild slate of crazy reimaginings of Arkoff titles directed by a whole manner of people who... It's jaw-dropping, you know, the sort of slate that they've got. Uh, In broadcast order, the films that were eventually made were She-Creature, How to Make a Monster, Earth vs. the Spider, Teenage Caveman, and The Day the World Ended. And yeah... They, they all run the gamut in quality, mm-hmm. and uh, despite their branding, as, as I've said, none of them are quite representative of the uh, modern creature feature standard of wildlife going nuts. Um, but they are an interesting little footnote in straight-to-TV stroke, straight-to-video filmmaking, especially as the films deserve a damn sight better than to be languishing in the uh, direct-to-DVD and video obscurity that they're currently in. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. Columbia TriStar Home Entertainment. Lou Arkoff, Colleen Camp, and Stan Winston. Academy Award-winning special effects artist for Jurassic Park, Terminator 2, and Aliens. Present Creature Features. All over the world, there are tales of mysterious sea creatures possessing magical powers with unparalleled beauty. They are just stories, 
Everyone knows they aren't real. Show's over. Do we offer you a ride home, sir? I came to your show tonight because I wanted to warn you of the danger. Everyone, until now. She has powers the others don't. She murdered my wife. A real-life bleeding mermaid. You'd love to show her as a freak. This is our ticket, Lily. All hands prepare to get underway! A bad feeling about this. That beast doesn't belong here. You caught me by surprise. I hope I didn't scare you. Lily and her husband, Angus, are about to discover... He's dead. She can read my thoughts, and she did this for me. ...that what lies behind the legend... What is it you want from me? ...is the most unthinkable truth. It's not the mermaid. It's something else. Rufus Sewell, Carla Gugino, Gil Bellows... She Creature. Okay, that was the trailer for She Creature there, the first film to air as part of this uh, Stan Winston uh, experiment. Um, also called The Mermaid Chronicles. It was directed by Sebastian Gutierrez, a director who hails from Venezuela. Uh, began his career with a film called Judas Kiss, although he uh, probably achieved notoriety as a screenwriter in terms of films like Gothica, The Big Bounce, Snakes on a Plane, Rise and the Eye. Um, she creatures a good place to begin, mm. really, isn't it? Almost deceptively so, mm. because it sets a very, very high uh, benchmark for the rest of the series. Um, which, while the other movies in the lineup don't quite get there, mm. they're still very, very interesting and they're still very, very cool. Yeah, and they're still well worth seeking out. Yeah, I mean, the original she creature. Was dates back to 1956. Uh, Edward L. Kahn directed that one, and uh, perhaps most memorably, it was a film to which Peter Lorre fired his agent, and he was so appalled by the original script. The original isn't a great film, is it? Really, no, it, it, it's, it's, it's not it's, the best. It's painful. It's painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know this this new reimagining, shall we say, mm. um, is it, quite remarkable, really. I um, mean. On, on the subject of the reimagining, though, mm. it's again this is a this sets the standard in the sense that it's a very very loose reimagining because yeah. she creature the two thousand and one one mm. it actually began under the title of another AIP film War of the Colossal Beast mm. it was actually going to be a, a loose remake of that right. until they decided that she creature with its emphasis on like an aquatic mm. monster. Was much more fitting. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a period piece, isn't it? It's set mm-hmm. in 1905, where we find two carnies, uh, Angus played by Rufus Sewell and Lily played by Carlo Gugino, uh, who well they abduct a mermaid, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in simplest terms, and decide to transport her back to America. But it's just so lush, isn't mm-hmm. it? Really, I mean, we're we're, we're we do like a carny-themed movie, don't we? Mm. Uh, be it films like Luther the Geek or maybe Malatesta's Carnival of Blood mm. or, or more classically, Carnival of Souls, of course. Yeah, it, it's got a great, the great carny hook to it. It but does. really, this film is, it's a period version of mm. Alien. Instead mm. of a spaceship, mm. you've got, uh, well... What an actual, <laughs> an actual seafaring vessel going yep. from England uh, to America, and instead of a xenomorph, you've got some sort of demonic uh, mermaid creature. Mm. I thought, um, I mean, Gutierrez in interviews has always stated how he's a big admirer of film noir. Mm. He loves the pulpiness 
which you can perhaps see is in a films like in films like Rise, for example. Mm. It's got that pulpy noirish nature, and I think this has to a lesser extent, in mm. that you can almost imagine it in in, in um, pictorial form in like one of those tatty carousels you find in, in the gateway to bookshops, just dog-eared, and you know you pick it up and it's kind of like a yeah. full color glossy um but, but it's like a, a pulp sort of literary mm. quality like uh you know like an old penny dreadful yeah you know i, I don't want to at the minute it's a very trendy thing to say but there's a definite like lovecraftian Other vibe is. to it yeah, you yeah, know yeah. um my personal feelings towards the whole lovecraft thing at the minute it's uh, you know it's quickly becoming another overused uh, horror twitter and horror clique buzzword um however the the good thing is if people are looking for Lovecraft-esque horror tales, maybe not so much the, the cosmic-y ones, like uh, The Colour Out of Space, but the, the sort of wetter, gloomy, and as you say, pulpy ones, you know, like The Shadow Over Innsmouth mm. and Dagon or Lurking Fear, She Creature very much fits in that bracket. Yeah, and it, it, it sort of sets that stall out early on, mm. doesn't it, with the introduction of uh, Mr Woolrich who I think is a brilliant character and really sets the tone of the film. You know, it's a role that was offered to Christopher Lee, was mm-hmm. it, originally? Yeah. And I think that whole sequence with him mm. and with that kind of spiel about the mermaid that he has in his house, mm. the one that uh, Angus and Lily decide to kidnap, I just thought that really gave it a very... Almost um, not hammer-esque, but Lovecraftian mm. feel. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the hammer allusions are, are very much there. I mean, the, the character's played by Aubrey Morris, mm. you know, who, of course, popped up in, uh, I think it was Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, the mm. hammer, mm. Um, probably more famously known for A Clockwork Orange, Wicker Man, Life Force. Um, you know, he's, he's this quirky, disgruntled sort of sea captain who, mm. you know, he's seen things <laughs> out, uh, out on the ocean. Mm. Um but yeah, and he, and he lives in this wonderful gothic mansion, mm. you know. And the whole the whole film's got even once they get on board the, sh- the ship, they've got this this wonderful look to all the sets. It's very set bound, mm. very very stylish, you know. This luxurious um, comic book aesthetic. Yeah, but that's that's the thing, isn't it? You know, once you get past the first reel, we're on that ship for the duration mm. of the film. Mm. Um, I mean, yes, it's claustrophobic, but you never get stir-crazy in regard to the mm. surroundings. The surroundings really suit the film, and they really lend, uh, I mean, to, just, to just look really beautiful. Mm. And that's one of the things that surprised me, because when the opening credits start up and you see the name Tom Calloway, he's mm. not someone you really associate with gorgeous cinematography. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he, he is brilliant, but he, he's, mm. he's a workhorse. He's yeah. a journeyman cinematographer. Mm. Mm. But the, the film... The actual whole conceit of, of she creature—it's it's about aesthetic beauty. Yeah. It's a—it's about the perceived nature of what is beautiful, and you know, it's it's completely centralised by uh, the mermaid herself, who's played by uh, Raya Kilstead. Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, but yeah, and she's this appropriately alluring um, sort of a cross between Sil from Species mm, and the fish mm. people yeah. from. Uh, from Stuart Gordon's Dagon. That's right. Uh, but very, very sexualised. There's a real erotic streak um, to the film, which, you know, mm. it, which sort of... That's not a Lovecraftian thing. You know, his work wasn't particularly sexual, but it is there in this movie. And it's about that... It's about visuals. It's about aesthetic. It's about tone and mood. Yeah. I mean, that mood is very much a feminist one as well, isn't it? It's mm. very much a feminist story. Because Lily 
ends up being quite a prominent character, especially in her relationship with the mermaid. Mm. So it's very much based around how those two interact and how Lily is, oh, she's on a ship full of men. Mm. And she uh, she got so many different, so many of the same parallels with the mermaid mm. in that it's quite a, a symbiotic relationship, yeah. doesn't it? And, and of course, once the mermaid starts getting inside Lily's head with it mm. being... With it being schlock horror territory, mm. it, of course, the, the most obvious way to show that is that uh, Lily suddenly develops this appetite for quite rough sex, <laughs> you know, which is the best way to visualise these, so, you know, to, to bring me out of some, some outside external forces messing with my mind, so I think I'm going to have a kinky fuck. <laughs> you know, that's a, I, I, I like that. Um, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's a film that sort of, there's so many different influences about the film, mm. so many films you can pinpoint around it, and so it relates to... Uh, and, and bears an influence from so many pictures. I mean, to me, there was a, a real sort of Val Luton quality to the film. Mm. Um, you know, go back to the 40s with Cat People, maybe a little bit of Ghost Ship as well. Mm. But there's one film in which it does have a, a very close relationship to, which I think is Night Tide. Mm. In the, you know, Night Tide, you've got a sailor falling in love with a, a carny performer in, in the Dennis Hopper slash Curtis Harrington film. And here... Although it's not exactly a sailor falling in love with a kind of performer, you, you, it is in that same world, mm. under the same kind of feel. Um, and you do find the two mentioned a great deal together. For example, in the book Icons of Horror and the Supernatural by S.T. Joshi, he cites that given the enduring popularity of The Little Mermaid, for example, uh, it's very rare for this creature to be depicted in anything but a very Disney type mm. of way but both Night Tide and She Creature are distinctive efforts in that sinister vein mm. so. I mean you know the, the whole film is designed around you know as a showcase for Stan Winston's special effects mm. and the actual mermaid when she transforms from this from the beautiful topless fish lady into mm. this hideous wet snarling monster mm. you know she's got it, it it's a classic rubbery monster yeah. kind of look to it. I love it. It's really, really icky. Um, a bit of the Alien Queen, um, bit of Predator, just a quality-looking Winston creation, and mm. one that obviously fits within the mould of like Winston's stuff. You, know, yeah. you can tell that it's from the same guy who's done Jurassic Park. You can tell mm. it's the same guy behind Predator, etc. And yet they're, they're unafraid to make the mermaid horrifying. And you've mm. got this wonderful bit at the end where there isn't just that mermaid. There's a whole swarm of them, and the whole thing is this ship has been drawn yeah, by yeah. some weird cosmic force, I guess, into going to the island. And of yeah. course, then you see on the side of the ship, the ship's called the Mary Celeste. <laughs> so, you know, it's just it's a nice bit of uh, a bit of mythology and playing with sort of legendary tropes and stuff. Even though that date-wise, the actual film is set like thirty-three years after the actual Mary Celeste. Mm, mm, uh, mm disappeared but you know I, I love the fact that uh, Gutter is uh, he, he tries to tie it in with that yeah I mean in relation to the creature obviously it looks phenomenal but I do find the five films following a very similar template in regard mm. to when the creature appears mm. the creatures are very much relegated to that final yeah you know last 10-15 minutes mm. which which is fine but um I think here it probably suits it more yeah, than the others. Yeah, this, this is where it works. Mm. Um, with that, obviously, it's a symptom of AIP 
themselves. That's just yeah, how the cla- how absolutely. how the the quote unquote AIP classics. That's mm-hmm. how they presented themselves. You'd just be you'd be teased all the way through and then given the monster just before the closing credits. Mm. Um, but yeah, she creature works. It's at a very very high benchmark as we've said for the rest of the series, and it is probably the the best film in terms of technical quality and uh, just sort of conventional atmospheric horror-making techniques. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. At Clayton Software, a new team of experts has been assembled to complete the most frightening video game ever. Kill or be killed. This game is going to help you think. It's going to learn as you play. No game will ever be the same. Yeah, and your AI engine is going to give evolution a brain. No, no, better. It'll give the game personality. So where's my mark? Anywhere you'd like. The remotes in the suit are fully charged. Now, their ultimate deadline... Come on, what's going on here? ...is about to get deadly. There's nowhere to run. So the computer's controlling the suit. No place to hide. And the computer's playing the game. Our game. Evolution. Kill or be killed or death is the only escape. When the game... Where's your now? ...knows your every move. It's getting smarter. Or I can't do that. It's just a game. No, it's not. It's everything. How do you kill something that isn't alive? Clea Duvall, Julie Strain. How to make a monster. Trailer for the second film in this quintet there, and that was How to Make a Monster. Directed by George Huang, who is, uh, I really like two of his films from the 90s. They're like two of my all-timers, uh... I know I'm not doing much more credibility, but I really like Swimming with Sharks mm-hmm. with Kevin Spacey. Don't say Spacey. <laughs> oh, a few episodes what? ago, you dropped Victor Salva, and now you're dropping Spacey. <laughs> I'm going to drop Spacey oh, in. Man. Um, but yeah, Spacey, one of his best roles. Uh, and also Trojan War, which is amazing. You ever seen Trojan War? Never seen it. Brilliant. Never just just, it. just, a, just a, a whole film about the quest to find a condom. Wow. It's amazing. It's <laughs> hilarious. Honestly, you should check it out. Anyway, How to Make a Monster. Um, thoughts? I love this film. Uh, this is my. It's not the best. Mm. It, it's it's not the the conventionally the best, but it's probably my tied favorite in right. the series, just purely because I'm hooked in from the outset with how to make a monster. Mm. Um, you know, it starts with some sort of weird fetishistic <laughs> uh, robo mechanical suit as the credits roll, mm. and. Aesthetically, I just love shit like that. Mm. Um, I'm a big, big fan of like mech fetish stuff. Yeah. You know, things like uh, things like that really appeal to me for some reason. Like Return of the Living Dead, Free, mm-hmm. Death Machine. Um, I think I just like that whole militaristic Tetsuoi body horror <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and you know, and and as well as that, as the credits are going, you've got this this March like score by David Reynolds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who, of course, also did the music for She-Creature and uh, the next film in the series, Earth First for Spider. But it's just got such a great look to mm. it that pulls me in from the minute the credits roll. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, you're not a gamer. No. 
I'm not a gamer, aside from maybe the occasional Larry Fessenden game. You know, we're, we're not part of that world. And I think that makes a big difference in how we feel mm. about this film. Yeah. Because much of the hate and disdain about this movie is from gamers who just rip it to shreds in regard <laughs> to every every aspect about it. Which is, you know, it's fair enough. It's a film, people, you know. Um, because, well, the whole film itself revolves around a game, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, the CEO of, of Clayton Software is played by Colleen Camp, uh, Faye Clayton. Uh, she lays off her development team, doesn't she? After their latest game, Evolution, um, received disastrous previews. Uh, hires replacements, gives them one month to uh, make a new game with the, the bonus the of. The scariest game imaginable. The scariest no, game imaginable. That's very brief. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> and um, with a bonus of a million dollars to those who make the game the most scariest, yeah. Um, that's it. So it literally is that simple. So you've got the, the four guys. There's four guys. You've got uh, Hardcore, you've got Bug, you've got. So three guys mm -hmm. and you got clear clear Deval. Yeah, who had quite the uh, quite the horror chops at the time. She did, didn't yeah, she? You know, you got the faculty, the astronaut's wife, ghosts of Mars, identity, the grudge, all of which she made. But where did she begin her career? In one of the best DTV horror pictures of the nineties. What? Little witches. You know what? I've never seen Little Haven't Witches. Have you seen I've that? Never seen oh, it. Oh, good lord. Uh, 18 years old she was didn't mm. know what she was doing had no clue what she was walking into is that the craft sort of rip off of the craft it is indeed yeah. it's very memorable um, I'm going to have to buy one of those but yeah so she, she's great she's really great she's unconventionally attractive as well isn't she mm. she really is sort of quite yeah, she's Subtly she's got the, the the girl next door Very type much so. quality yeah. to her you know she's and you can you can imagine her in this world of like hardcore tech geeks yeah but it's her path in the film that's probably the most intriguing, even though mm -hmm. she's very much a background character for the majority of the film. Um, she, she, her path is, is pretty, pretty interesting, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, the, the whole arc where she she goes from nice, uh, affable, uh, she wants to design uh, websites and stuff mm -hmm. like that, to by the end of it, she's just a stone-cold bitch. Yeah. Um, but, of course, in the interim, she's had to fight off this uh, weird biomechanical <laughs> monster that's come to life from the game that they're developing. Yeah. And, has start, and it, it's ended up locking down the compound that they're working in mm. and just picking off the game designers one by one. It is pretty goofy. Oh, know? yeah, without doubt. Without um, doubt. Schlocky, uh, mm. overused word in our vocabulary, but, but that's what it is. It's a, it, it's a comic book movie. It's, yeah. a, it's a big cartoon. You know, it's, it's yeah, I mean, colourful well, production design. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about a comic book movie next mm. but this is the better type this of comic is the book yeah, movie the, the better of the two of them yeah because it's it's more comic booky at its core more uh, organically yeah it's not shoehorned in exactly like, like Earth vs. the Spider as we'll get to is, mm. is it's very forced comic booky mm, mm. um, whereas this this is just its whole vibe you yeah. know it's got that sort of EC ghoulishness mm, to mm. it um, and yeah, it's it's just a colourful, bright, well shot, lively, gory. Mm. It, it's a good time. Yeah, I mean, if you look back across the years, there's not really been that many video game themed genre movies. Would you say? Um, um, I'm thinking about things like Arcade, for example, mm -hmm. Charlie Banded, Brain Scan, for example, Stay Alive in the Noughties. Existence to some degree from Cronenberg, mm. but it's never really been 
a field in which there's been a perpetual I mean think of the gaming industry and how massive that is mm. wouldn't you think that that would be echoed in the film business but do you think maybe owing to the rapidly changing nature of the technology mm. do you think that this can't be uh, a subject or a field that can be echoed in film because it, it's it's there forever and you look mm. back in 10 20 years and you think oh that's, oh, that's well I've got a theory with, with stuff like that, that nothing dates a horror movie or a thriller more than a VR plot or mm. setting. You know, virtual reality is... If you want time to be kind to your movie, <laughs> you do not go with VR or computer games because what might be cutting edge now... You know, look at The Lawnmower Man. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. amazing in 1992. <laughs> Fast forward to, like, what, 2020? And... You know, they're kind of doodles on an Etch-A-Sketch. Yeah, and yeah. it is really, really, like, exhausting trying to watch it and let your eyes focus <laughs> to this stuff. Um, the, the weak spot of How to Make a Monster is the is the CGI. And mm. as someone who goes out of my way to defend bad CGI, <laughs> it does kill me to say that. But I would say it is... It's what I term deliciously naff. Mm. You know, it, it, it looks like they've stepped into a really bad 1995 version of Doom. Yeah, you know, it's got that sort of pixelated quality and stuff to it, and thankfully, it's few and far between because the real meat of the story is when you have this weird biomechanical zombie mm. that's getting pieced together from all the body parts of the, yeah. the hacked up uh, crew, uh, the game designing crew. Sorry, you know, it 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 looks like something that's being kicked off the set of Virus. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. got that sort of vibe to it. But in relation to what you said at the top of the program, I mean, they. Did have a spin-off of this film, didn't they? They had a game mm-hmm. called Evolution: The Legend of Helnar, created by John Hegeman. It was a heart-stopping web-based interactive 3D game where a player must defend his life against evil creatures. Mm. I can't find any trace of it. I imagine it's massively out of print and deeply, deeply expensive. I, would um, imagine I so. also. Based upon playing on a time where I would have considered myself a gamer in right. like the turn of a millennium, stuff like that always used to confuse the living hell out of me. <laughs> the controls were so complicated. But I'd like to think that it would be focused around the actual monster mm, at the mm. core of it because it's just a brilliant, brilliant bit of practical effects. It was designed um, by Jason Matthews uh, and Mark Crash McCreary and Aaron Sims and Shane Mahan. Mm. And just, uh, yeah, just brilliant practical effects. Gross, weird, this fusion of flesh and the mechanical. What I love about How to Make a Monster is it makes me rewind it just because it's such a joy to look at this horrible mm. creature. Yeah. Um, it's the type of stuff, you know, I put a tweet out after I'd watched it saying that you should always measure a monster movie, whether the actual monster's cool or not, is mm. if it make, would make 10 year old you want to draw it <laughs> in the back of like your school exercise yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. And. This was just the coolest thing mm, to me. Mm. I just loved it, and it helped that there was some great, great squirty blood effects in there. Yeah. That you can just, you can just tell Huang was having a whale of a time, ta- a whale of a time with the material. Yeah. Well, as they set out to do, <coughs> I mean, it was one of their remits for the whole series, was to reflect the fears of today. And well, for example, a she creature might not have come across in that manner. It might have just mm. been a general sort of mythical fairy tale. Um, How to Make a Monster does tackle that quite head on, doesn't it? You know, mm. in terms of with it being a, a morality tale about greed mm. and corruption. You know, we, we mentioned upon Claire Duval's character before, but the path that she takes, you know, 
there's a metaphor for you know greed and um, hunger for money and profitability mm. Mm. and stepping on anybody in, in the quest to get rich. Yeah, there's a, uh, but is it that's the thing because as as much as the effects the v, the VR effects sort mm. of date it, there is this weird timelessness in in that as a theme and in also in there's a character who pops up called Jeremy, mm. uh, who's like uh, I believe it's the ex-boyfriend of Clea Duvall's character, and he's just—it's it, a blink and you'll miss him cameo from uh, that guy from that '70s show, Danny Masterson, mm. and he plays this really sexist, horrible, misogynistic, abusive kind of guy, mm. um, which now, of course, is quite frightening, as Masterson has mm. quite famously been accused of rape. Mm-hmm. You know and. Uh, He's probably better known as being a serial rapist now, mm. um, a vile piece of shit by all accounts. Yeah. Uh, you know, Scientologist, and apparently they're very, very defensive of him and go to great lengths to protect him, uh, like harassing his accusers, uh, apparently killing their pets and things like that. It's just all manner of crazy stuff. Um, I don't want to get too. Uh, too woke or anything and no, I don't no, want to no. say too too much about it in case the Church of Scientology start coming <laughs> after us um, but seeing him in that role it just adds an extra level of admittedly accidental resonance yeah. but it does help to sort of frame frame how to make a monster around the current hashtag me too topic of conversation yeah. in terms of how women the environment in which women have to work when they're surrounded by these asshole men. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that that whole aspect of it is just as fascinating as the pulpy, schlocky comic book sensibility of the movie. Yeah, without doubt. And just a, a quick word also on the original uh, from 1958. Of all the five original AAP movies, perhaps this is one of the the two that deserves a, a revisit. I mean, you've, you've got Robert H. Harris playing Pete Dumont, an eccentric makeup artist with a 25-year career who gets laid off, so he decides to exact his revenge by hypnotising a teenage Frankenstein and a teenage werewolf to exact their revenge on the studio. And it's wonderful, wonderful stuff that uh, is incredibly pricey in the second-hand market, but you might be able to dig it out on YouTube or somewhere. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. For Quentin Kemmer, being normal gets him nowhere. Hang on, I'll, I'll, I'll walk you down. She's out of my league. You're a good security cop at an important research lab. Larry must have something that makes him invincible. I wish I could do some of this stuff. Spiders like their prey alive and kicking. Being nice is no good. Guys, just just back off. Or what? I'll call the cops. You don't have to stick up for me. And being good isn't good enough. Let the real cops handle this, all right? My partner's in there. No, no. Expect heroes for five bucks an hour. All he needed was a shot in the arm. Something very cool is happening to me. Did you see the front page today? That Midtown creep. Looks like someone took care of the Midtown for you. I think I have superhero powers. <laughs> You're scaring me now. Hungry! Still hungry! Now, a cop with a past. You gotta be careful here. They're about to pull you off this case must uncover the secret behind the killer. What exactly do you do here? You ever see what a spider can do? What the hell are you? 
that's half man. Any data yet on what would happen if you introduced this spider material into a human organism? And all terror. Dan Aykroyd, Earth versus the Spider. That was the trailer for Earth versus the Spider, or Dan Aykroyd versus the Spider, which is what it really <laughs> should be known as, to be honest. A remake of Bert I. Gordon's film from 1958. Um, Meh. <laughs> See, I'm going to start off again by talking about the director, Scott Zeal, who again... Like George Wang, made one of my favourite 90s DTV films, which is Broken Vessels, which I think is, is on par with Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead. Mm-hmm. They're both, mm-hmm. both ambulance-based, uh, paramedic-based movies, and it really does um, demand um, uh, people checking it out. Um, so, yeah, big fan of the Scott Seal, but, yeah, for, for both of us, this, this didn't really do much, did it? No. Um, you know, this is, it's the third film in the run and I think that the first two the first one was so good mm. and set such a high benchmark that if you I can imagine people being a little shocked seeing how America Monster and how different mm. it was if mm. they were going and expecting quite serious horror movies and Earth vs. the Spider is in many ways more of the same yeah. as how to make a monster but it it's just it's nowhere near as good. The the comic book sort of setup and framing of it mm. is it's I, I found it quite obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um I mean, I know we're not the biggest comic book fans in the whole comic book movie mm. fans in the whole world. But um I just didn't I mean this, this was pre Spider Man as well, pre Sam mm. Wayne Raimi Spider Man. So it was very much outside what we know today as the Typical comic book uh, sort of market for, mm. for, for films. You know, this was an era which comic book films just didn't get made. Um, but it just, yeah, I, I don't, for one, I'm not a fan of Devin Gummersaw because I think he really does have a charisma bypass mm. in this film. Yeah. And that he doesn't have any kind of real eye catching thing about him. There's, there's, there's this blandness. Other, other than the fact he's a security guard who's obsessed with comics. One mm. in particular, the uh, the Arachnid Avenger, which I can only presume is the non-copyright infringing version of Spider-Man. <laughs> there, there's nothing to him. And he saw the performance is really quite snivelling and just quite unlikable and whiny. Yeah. And it's just a shoehorn comic book references, you know. His dog is called Thor. Um, the comic book guy is your typical comic book guy, played by John Cho, who went on to um, Harold and Kumar fame. Yeah, it, it's just the whole setup and delivery. And aside from a final sequence or a final couple of sequences with Stan Winston's creation, mm. I think it's a very sort of. Um, well, I mean, a lot happens in this film, but it's very boring. If I hadn't wrote it down, I couldn't tell you the sequence of events. It mm. just sort of trundles along from one thing uh, to the next. I guess it's ostensibly a superhero origin story in yeah. that Gummersall's character, he's unable to prevent a robbery that's taken place at this um, lab that he's working at that happens to be conducting these experiments on uh, super spiders. Mm-hmm. And so he can't he, he can't stop this robbery. His, security, his old veteran partner gets killed and Gummersall, who's sick and tired of being 
tread on and put down all his life by his neighbours, some awful punks who live outside his flat, mm. and uh, his workmates. But he he gets injected by one of the machines that is extracting the sort of super spider serum mm. from these tarantulas. And so then he starts on his the whole uh, fly type transformation as yeah. he becomes first he thinks he's getting superhero powers but then ultimately we head towards Cronenberg territory and mm. his body he's just becoming a giant spider yeah, it's, it's even even the effects for me of, of uh, it's typical that you know this is the film that got the Fangoria cover story yeah. you know Fangoria issue 207 had uh, a whole thing on uh, Stan Winston and Arkoffs and mm-hmm. uh, Camp's creature features and Earth vs. the Spider is the one who got the cover but it's just kind of it's not on screen enough it's kind of awkward to look at you know considering it's it's the film's big hook it's just the the pincers around the mouth are just kind of clunky and it just Gummersall just can't doesn't seem at least to be able to Immortal or act under the makeup either. It's literally he's just wearing an a, an exotic Halloween costume. It's just strange because I don't think he's a bad actor. I mean, he was in Rico, wasn't he? About a year mm-hmm. later or something. And I think he's great in that. And there are aspects of the film in which you can you can happily nod away. Um, you know, in, in in relative satisfaction. At for example, Amelia Heinle uh, as his Mary Jane. Uh, she's good, and also reminded me that she was lead in uh, a great film called Black Cat Run. Uh, I haven't seen in ages, which was directed by DJ Caruso and written by Frank Darabont, which really does deserve checking out. Ackroyd is. It's, Ackroyd? It, it's one of them, you know, it's Richard Roundtree pops up as well. Mm. Teresa Russell pops up, and it's just. But why? That's the, the thing that why? Keep, I mean, I can understand Ackroyd being in the film because he's a massive police nut. Mm. He, um, <laughs> it's a true story, he, uh, he owns and rides a police motorcycle. Right. Yeah. He collects police badges. Hmm. <laughs> um, he has been known to ride shotgun with detectives and squad cars. Good lord. Yeah. And his grandpa was a Mountie. So he has a really big fetish for police orientated stuff. And he very rarely plays uh, mm. policeman. The last policeman I saw him play was in Exit to Eden, which I've seen All more right. times than I care to admit. Well, here was me thinking Ackroyd just endlessly touts <laughs> Ghostbusters 3. I had no, no idea he had so many other strings to his bow. <laughs> Uh, of course, there. that's me just being glib. He's a, <laughs> he is a, a comedy icon. So yeah, so there's, there's that aspect to it. But yeah, you mentioned about Cronenberg before. Um, it really is. Do you think is it more comic book than Cronenberg, or more Cronenberg than comic book? Or does it not really know? Is it a case of identity uh, crisis? It's it's neither fish nor fowl. Mm. I can't think of anything to describe this movie other than a, like a string of idioms. Yeah. In that it's just kind of there. I wasn't bored rigid, but I found my mind wandering and I found it difficult to... I just didn't care. No, there was no, no. I didn't like any of the characters. Mm. Um, I thought the style was intrusive mm. um, and quite repellent. And the, the soul, like I said, the soul thing, I thought at least the effects could save it, but no. Um, I think there's part of me that wonders if Earth vs. the Spider was a bit of a vanity vehicle. Right. Um, the story was conceptualised by one of the concept designers of the creature. Oh, right, okay. Who worked on the rest of the series, mm. the aforementioned Mark Crash McCreary. Yeah. Um, he came up with the story of it. Um, and I just think that 
there's just not enough there. Mm-hmm. It, I don't even think it would have worked as a 20-minute Tales from the Crypt episode yeah. or anything like that. I just think it's it, it just treads water before ultimately drowning. Yeah. Um, I mean, I read a piece from Mitch Lavelle in Video Vacuum, mm. who I quite like, to be honest. Um, but he called it the best of the AMP remakes, which... Um, Absolutely not. No, no, it's absolutely not. Uh, should people check it out regardless of what we say? As a completist, yeah. I think yeah. that, like, it would... If you're wanting to watch all of them, you need to see it. But if mm. you're just wanting to cherry-pick the best ones, this is the one to... This is the bottom of the pile. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. When civilization is gone... Did you catch something? I haven't had meat in months. And ignorance rules society. This... It's the old world, and it's gone. A group of rebellious teens go in search of a better life. It's a city. That's where we're going. Now. I'm Neil, and this is Judith. What is this place? It used to be a biotech research complex. Now it's our home. They will come face to face with the past and discover a modern lifestyle that offers every freedom. We have a whole world to show you. Fulfills any fantasy. Sex is like nothing else in the world. But will destroy everything. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, you shouldn't wander around alone. In its path. No! They tricked me somehow. They can make you see things. They're trying to turn us into people like them. Stop! I had sex with them! I'm gonna die! Humanity's day is done, David. You'll find out yourself. From director Larry Clark, Andrew Keegan, Tara Subkoff. Whatever's in him is in me too. Teenage Caveman. That was Teenage Caveman. Where do we begin with Teenage Caveman? <laughs> <laughs> I love this one. I think it's brilliant. Mm. Um, I am a big, big fan of its director, Larry Clark. I was worried about what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think it, it. this is such a wild and crazy reconciliation of Clark's directorial obsessions mm. with schlocky material. And to see them fuse together on screen is really quite spectacular. But if it didn't have the Misfits track, would you still feel the same? <laughs> um, uh, that helps, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Having Where Eagles Dare blaring um, is, is, is that, that, one of the film's many, many highlights. That, that's one of the highlights of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, just to explain to everyone, that is the scene in which the unique and late, sadly, Richard Hillman... Um, appears on screen for the very first time. Uh, why is he there? Well, he's there because he has six visitors to his um, to his post-apocalyptic uh, penthouse. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Well, let's start at the beginning because you got our lead guy, um, David, played by Andrew Keegan, has got a bit of a twatty dad, played by Paul Hip, who was a staple of Abel Ferrara's films. Uh, played Jesus in Battle Lieutenant. Mm, yeah. Um, also, Dan O'Dare in uh, Bad Channels, the, right. the Full Moon okay, film. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, one thing leads to another, and um, uh, his dad 
makes an advance on his girlfriend, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty unsavory. So he finds himself because he, he attacked his father in the act of, you know, uh, about to rape his girlfriend. He then finds himself strung up on a on a cross, yeah. like Jesus, in cast cast out from this yeah. prehistoric tribe, mm-hmm. who we have quickly learned aren't actually prehistoric. No. You know, there's a wonderful gag at the beginning where. There's a Larry Clark cameo. He ends up getting <laughs> speared. Mm. Um, and it turns out that what we think is, you know, what, one million years BC or whatever, mm. we soon see a dilapidated no skateboarding <laughs> sign. And this is actually some post-apocalyptic future. Yeah. yeah. Um, so poor old David has been strung up um, for attacking his father. Uh, but luckily he has his, his, his crew of of kids to sort of, no pun intended, um, to break him free and they decide to escape from this prehistoric uh, village and head mm. into the city, which we soon learn is Seattle. Mm. Um, the centre of grunge. Indeed. Uh, and where, where they uh, they become overcome. Uh, and sort of Yeah, they end up falling into this weird, I guess... Uh, they want it to be like a de facto family unit, but it's yeah. all kinds of depraved and weird of, of Neil, who's played by Richard Hillman, and Judith, who uh, is played by Tiffany uh, Lemos. Mm. And these are two... I don't even know how to... Exp- they're sort of government experiments that have somehow survived all this post-apocalyptic stuff and are now living the high life in this plush apartment that's built above a research facility. Yeah. And... So in the middle of like uh, an ice storm or acid storm, whatever it is, the these kids they they black out and they awake, uh, they wake up to the blaring sounds <laughs> of the misfits in Neil and Judith's plush apartment, mm. uh, which they explain as it used to be a biotech research yeah. complex, but now it's our home. Mm. And now, well, they learn about what modern life uh, is about, I guess. Oh, well, according to Neil and um, Judith, because the first thing they do is obviously uh, decide to have a bath together, then they have an orgy, and then kind of all sinister goings on begin mm. to happen. Um, and it, the film is, in many ways, a dumpster fire, um, because it is. there's no sort of uh, long... It, it's not a plot-based no, film at no. all. It's just like a... It's experience-driven, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it's just... It's just this sensory nightmare. Mm. There's a lot to dig into with it, though. No, there is. You know, I mean, from from the outset, you've got this digs at religion, <laughs> um, you know, and it's it's heavy handed. But I do mm. like movies that deal with the sort of hypocrisy. Yeah. Of the uh, of religion, it's a topic that I'm personally very interested in from. Mm. Uh, my own personal thoughts on the matter about you know how like the, the most devout always seem to be uh, <laughs> the most perverted and mm. have the darkest desires, um, but yeah, I also like it as a device within uh, post-apocalyptic movies. Yeah. Uh, I like the way that religion is is often the only thing that characters can seem to latch onto as as the world around them. I guess what goes to hell, um, and of course Clark has loads of cheeky digs at religion throughout the narrative mm. uh, and about uh, at the hypocrisy of it. Yeah. Um, you know, by having uh, David kill his father, which is a very biblical concept, very so, yeah. um, but he, he stabs him in the eye with a crucifix, <laughs> which is just a, a, a nice ironic touch. And then there's 
obviously the the whole typical Clark concept of youth mm. culture. Mm. I read an interview with Clark um, where he said that Cheat Creature was his first choice. Mm. And then he went on to say how, you know, obviously the IP films, as we um, stated before, represented the fears of the 50s. So um, the idea for Teenage Caveman was very much to reflect the fears of today being ecological, AIDS, HIV, sex and disease. But he set out to make it um, in very much an anti-TV mm. way. So by that, he sort of meant, you know, whatever TV does to sort of polish things and make it nice and uh, crisp and clean and homogenized, he set out to, you know, mix it up a bit. Uh, he said he didn't want that. He really wanted to just mm. make it, you know, sort of the opposite to what TV yeah, represents. Yeah. And but, I think he did that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he summed it up as the stepchild of the series, mm. you know, um there's a wonderful quote from him where he says that uh, that's the thing I learned if you get involved with a series of movies don't get stuck being the last one because <laughs> whatever goes over budget on the first film comes mm. out of yours yeah. so I think that part of that the ever the provocateur he uses mm. next use to you know what fuck it I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want yeah. and, you know, so he makes it very anti-TV he is mm. very very raw very uh, youthful and but to me, you can tell that Clark, as a filmmaker, is excited and fascinated by rawness and by mm. um, a young person's perception and point of view of the world. Yeah. And, you know, and as, for as over-the-top and uh, lurid and as sens- uh, sensationalistic Clark's work seems, there, there, there is an honesty, I think, to, mm. to his stuff. He's unafraid to show young people drinking, partying, taking drugs, sexually experimenting... Um, I think it, it's powerful and, you know, it sounds over the top, but almost <laughs> life-affirming being exposed to that, yeah. uh, exposed to Clark's work as a teenager. And to me, like the best horror, Teenage Caveman is a safe way to confront your apprehensions of, of growing up, mm. you know, of, of the, the, the controversy within Clark's uh, Filmography in mm. the, which he piles on in Teenage Caveman because mm. if you can't be controversial in a horror movie, when can you be? Yeah. You know that's just a way to address it and to grab you by the throat and make you watch it. Yeah, obviously it's been criticised as most of Larry Clark's films have been criticised mm. for. Um, you know the, the depiction of that kind of um, you know adolescent teenage kind of mm. character, but I, I you know it's just something that. Mm. I can acknowledge the fact that you know he does have a lingering eye, but I wouldn't say it's yeah. I wouldn't say it's seedy. I don't feel dirty after watching a Larry yeah. Clark film. It's you know his direction's unflinching. Mm. I think that's that's the word I would use to describe it. You know, I think Teenage Caveman would play very very well with something like George Romero's Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in the last sort of decade or so, you can see um, traces of. Teenage Caveman in stuff like uh, Dead Girl and I'm Not a Serial Killer. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people seem to have a big, big problem with the teen orgy yeah, in the film, um, as if it was as if he was actually using real underage mm. kids in it. And so you know, there are that's the thing. I mean, you um, Andrew Keegan's twenty three, Tara Subkoff's thirty, Richard Thomas twenty eight, Tiffany mm. Lameau twenty two, uh, Stephen Jasso is the only teenager and he's nineteen. Mm. Um, so you know, you're talking about. You know, mm. yes, the teenager, the teenage character teenage aspect is, you know, mm. is, is mentioned, but they're not. They're not. But it's, 
you know, it's not. I I remember I had a I had a problem reading uh, Alan Jones. He he mm. said that it was basically a teenage sex film or something like that. <laughs> in his Radio Times review of it, really? but that the orgy where the the high, the drunk, everyone's just fucking everyone. It's not sexy, like you say. It's, it's not, it's not a titillating way. sequence, and I love that. And it's quite realistic, um, you know, for yeah. those of you who've had orgies, <laughs> um, because they're embarrassed. You know, mm. they're embarrassed. They're awkward. Uh, you know the kids he's employing in the film are fairly, uh, you know, they're not inexperienced actors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, like it's yeah, it's it's not porn style. It's not designed to titillate. And it, to me, it reminds me of the the murder scene in Larry Clark's Bully. Oh yeah. Um, you know, which too it it's messy, like you say. It's awkward, like you say. Um, and it's just kind of unpleasant. It's got that feeling of queasiness about it you know you, you you feel as drugged and as messed up mm. and as intoxicated as, as they are um, and you can almost sense this sort of mm. impending shame you know like when they all wake up the next day and are quite like oh my god what, what have we mm. done you know it's that sequence is arguably the closest feeling of a post one night stand <laughs> beer fear ever yeah. captured yeah, on yeah, film yeah, yeah. absolutely right tangent and uh, I do think it has a lot of um in common with Rocky Horror Show, mm-hmm. and the, you know, you naive visitors to an avant-garde abode who experience a carnal awakening where the sexually ambiguous host seduces them before revealing mm-hmm. themselves to be aliens slash mutants. It's yeah. got a weird sort of um, relationship. With yeah, that. that's that's a that's a very good call. Um, and of, of course, for unlike in the Rocky Horror Show, the, the the weird mutants in here they all start bursting. Yeah. So you've got these ridiculously squirty, splattery effects. Um, I, what I do think we need to touch on is is uh, Richard Hillman. Yeah. Because uh, this performance, it's it, unbelievable. It is bravura, but mm-hmm. I can see why people would say it's off-putting. This is the barometer of which you, if you can't accept his acting and how mm. over the top and abrasive it is, you are going to hate every goddamn second of mm. this film. But my god, his how he plays drunk and drugged mm. up is, is amazing. Like you met people yeah, like that completely. Um, um, just the realism of it. It's amazing, um, but heartbreaking. At the yeah. same time, because uh, Hillman, of course, he 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 died of uh, uh, drugs and booze killed him. Basically, he contracted HIV from mm. sharing a needle. Mm. Um, horrible, horrible rumours kicking about um, mm. uh, that he'd been abused by his father. Um, you know, it's a lot of similarities there with uh, Brad Renfro yeah. from Bully yeah, that's true. as mm. well. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and another lad who was uh, in Kids as well by Larry Clark. He seems to. He seems to be able to capture the rawness and heartbreak of these troubled souls on camera mm, really, really mm. well. And it's it's both mesmeric and horrifying. Without doubt. Um, really great score as well from Zoe Polidorus, mm. uh, daughter of Basil Polidorus. She didn't do many scores, but this one I thought really, really fit with the film. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a tricky film to recommend, isn't it? I mean, it, it's one of the... Of the five films, it's 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 the Marmite of the yeah. bunch. Um, I think it says a lot that Stan Winston's name is absent mm. from the credits. Um, I can only imagine that he was completely and utterly horrified by how on the nose and how confrontational and aggressive this film is. But if you like 
t- pull no punches, take no prisoners horror filmmaking, I think Teenage Caveman is spectacular. And if you are, if you love the films of Larry Clark, it is a joy to see him uh, sort of mine his vision within a horror and fantasy and sci-fi framework. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. There's something out there. I saw it. Where? In the trees. I don't see anything. There. A boy's imagination can hide many things. Are you different? I can't tell you. A dark past. For the others. An evil presence. You don't know what's going on? Then explain it to me. And even... An alien force. But just because it hasn't happened... Found that stuck in the bathroom stall. What is it? Looks like some kind of claw. Doesn't mean it won't. Just because you can't see it... Ben said that he saw something out there in the woods. Doesn't mean it's not there. It's a monster. It's not from here. And just because it isn't real doesn't mean it can't kill you. He created something. Something to kill for him. Tell her that creature is you. Randy Quaid. What happened to Ben when his mother died? Natasha Kinski. Ben's not normal, Dr. Stillman. You said it yourself. The day the world ended. Trailer there for The Day the World Ended, which was uh, directed by Terry Gross. Thoughts? Um, well... This is, to me, this is a very, very interesting in the sense that this is the only one of the five that didn't premiere on Cinemax. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, if you, look, if you look at all the others, you had She Creature played on Cinemax Tuesday the 4th of October 2001, mm. uh, which, uh, as a side note, was two and a half weeks after Samuel uh, Z. Arkoff passed away right. at the age of 83. Um, How to Make a Monster, it played the week after on Thursday the 11th of October. Mm. Uh, Earth vs. the Spider, Thursday the 18th of October. And Teenage Caveman, Thursday the 25th of October. Um, There was about a four-week pause after Teenage Caveman. And uh, The Day the World Ended premiered on HBO on Friday the 23rd of November 2001. From what I gather... It was going to be the one that uh, it was meant to be the sort of the big one that saw them get uh, see them get a second series commissioned, yeah. and instead of playing on Cinemax, it was going to be played on the more quote unquote prestigious HBO. Yeah. So where does this sit with you? I mean, for me, I've got to rank She Creature, Caveman, Monster, maybe this, and this feels to be a low fourth. I mean. It doesn't feel deserving of a fourth place, shall mm, I say. Mm. It, it feels like it should be higher, but I think because of the quality of those three, I think it has to sit in, in, in fourth yeah. place. It's got it's got more going for it than Earth vs. the Spider, yeah, yeah, but I, I still had a hard time 
with it. Well, did it's, you? it's this and Earth vs. the Spider are the two um, creature features uh, in terms of its brand name. Anyway, that I come back to the least. Mm. Um, there is a lot to like about it, though. It's not badly made by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. You know, there's a strange, creepy quality to the movie. Um, I don't want to say that the film is overtly serious. You know, some of the side characters of Stroke Townsfolk are really quite broadly drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not as day cartoonish as How to Make a Monster or Earth vs. the Spider. But it's not real, though, either. There's a... There's a real surreal streak to the film, which I like. Natasha Kinski, she sort of plays the straight woman who is our sort of lead-in through all this weird small-town stuff. Uh, and it all sort of swirls around her. And, yeah, it's it's okay. I guess it's got what you'd sort of term now a, a Stranger Things type vibe. Yeah, I suppose so. I just find it very straight. I mean, to me, it had a lot of um, similarities with that classic Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life. Mm. which aired in the second season. I think it's considered one of the best sort of Twilight Zone episodes with the kid who can pretty much control most of the small town and yeah. the monster itself. I mean, Joe Dante remade that for Twilight Zone, the movie, but I think he mm. changed the character of a kid into like a 20-something person. Yeah, I've, I, I've had a hard time with that movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, to me, it had a lot of relationship with that, but... It just felt like a bit of an X Files episode. Yeah, it's which definitely... again sounds like a really mm. sort of damning um, indictment of, of the whole thing. And it, mm. it's not. It's just. It's a little bit bland. It's a little bit unexciting. It's a little bit. I mean, the small town is great. You know, there are small towns and there are small towns, and this is mm. a, this is a mm. small town. Um, but yeah, I mean. I like the idea of the of the of uh, Kinski's character, Doctor Jennifer Stillman, the child psychologist coming from out of town, um, and finding herself in this strange environment. Mm. I thought the kid was absolutely perfect. I thought he was amazing. Yeah, very good. Really, like long history. The kid is played by Bobby Edna. Um, long history with 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 kids TV, kids mm. adverts, and stuff like that. I think he went on to be in a boy band. I think a couple of years after this. Uh, where he achieved a, a modicum of success, um, but yeah, and there are other little little things about it that I like, like the way they show uh, clips of the original movie mm. on the TV. Uh, nods like that, I, I do like, mm. but aside from that, it doesn't really. Uh, yeah, there's. It's just. It's it's like what a creature from the id that this kid mm. has conjured, and it's sort of just menacing the townsfolk. Um, the townsfolk they have this secret in that uh, they it turns out that what they killed and the the kid's mum, mm-hmm. and you never really know if this creature, if this kid's been born of alien interference, no. which is what's hinted at. It's I think the problem is that uh, the, is the gross is lumped with quite a shoddy script that never it never answers the questions that it puts forward yeah I mean you had Brian King behind the story who wrote The Great Cypher and Haunter for mm. Vincenzo Natale but you also had Max Ensko and Andy De Young who of course wrote Earth vs. the Spider mm. uh, and I think there's a little bleed into this that, of that same mundanity and the same yeah. kind of mm. but having said that well 
again, it's a kind of cliche aspect to it as well, you know, like the, the small town, the outcast kid, the outsider from another place. Um, and also the fact that no one should really have to see Stephen Tobolowsky having sex. Um, <laughs> because that's, that's just crossing the boundaries of good taste, in all honesty. And also, I think I, I really, really like the original. I mean, out of all the Sam Arkoff originals, mm. this is the one that I did find um, I enjoyed the most. Mm. Maybe it's because it's a Roger Corman film. I think it was his fourth film that he made mm. back in 1955. I just love it. Uh, Richard Denning is in it, Laurie Nelson. Um, it's a very different story where it's sort of a post-nuclear apocalypse with an unlikely bunch of survivors who are trapped in a protected valley with the uh, nuclear fallout mm. around the perimeter. Um, yeah, I, I am very, very fond of that. And like I said, I think it's the best of the original Arkov 5. Funnily enough, this, this Terry Gross film to, from 2001, it isn't the first time it's been remade. It was actually remade in... Um, the 60s, uh, under, the, under the title, in the year 2889, almost verbatim, mm. uh, which was a bit weird. You know, line for line. Um, terrible film. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is the, the second remake of that. There, there is stuff that I, I do like about it. I think Gross has a good handle on mood mm -hmm. um, it's very very well shot he has a great visual sensibility yeah. it's just it's the plotting mm. um, but the creature is is kind of cool yeah. um, it, my frustration is that it, it's hidden for a lot of it and shot very very dark save for like a tentacle mm -hmm. here and there uh, an eye every now and again um, but there's a wonderful uh, sequence set in it of all places a public bathroom and mm. uh, and this, it, this toilet attack on the Ben character, oh, yeah. the young kid. Brilliant. Um, and so, you know, there's, it's got such a weird, creepy double meaning to it mm. when this tentacle's <laughs> slivering over the cubicle and he's yeah. going, Dad, Dad? <laughs> well, this awful phallic tentacle <laughs> slivering around. It's, it's, it's like some weird paedophile glory yeah. hole nightmare um, it's very inappropriate you know mm. having a kid at the centre of what basically what Cthulhu goes cottaging yeah. but um, <laughs> you know I, I do think that the creature the, the design of it when you finally see it um, it's designed by Scott Stoddard and it's sort of it's like a cross between Predator and the, the, the toothsome aliens within the deadly spawn Yeah, and yeah it's uh, I, the, the movement of it is very cool yeah, as well. Yeah. The, the creature performer was a guy called Brian Steele, who was a fairly well-decorated creature performer. Mm. Um, standing at a whopping 6'7", uh, he began as Frankenstein's monster at Universal Studios Theme Park. Mm. And then uh, he'd, he'd go on to play the eponymous Bigfoot in Harry and the Hendersons right. uh, in 23 episodes of that. And my personal favourite, he was actually the guy who brought the Cathoga to life in uh, Peter Himes's The Relic, right. which uh, incidentally suffers from the same uh, problem as The Day the World Ended, in that uh, the Cathoga is also shot far too dark. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Steel got other creature work in the can. Um, Underworld, The Cave, Terminator Salvation, Predators, and uh, most recently the Lost in Space revival for Netflix. Okay. So, yeah, quite an accomplished monster guy. Ah, very cool. So, I think you wrote on Twitter a couple of weeks back that um, these films are, are deserving of a 
you know, Scream Factory box set Blu-ray mm -hmm. release, and they are, aren't they? You mm -hmm. know, together, individual, together. I'd love to see them in a box. Yeah. I think that they are. You can watch She Creature, Teenage Caveman, and How to Make a Monster mm -hmm. on their own. Yeah, but. I think they are they're worthwhile watching as a continuum. Mm -hmm. um, it, it certainly helps uh, first for Spider. It that makes yeah. it a lot more yeah. palatable. <laughs> um, but if you do that, when you when it comes to the day the world ended, mm. to have this is the one that they tried to use to get a second series, yeah. you know, and obviously there'll be other factors. Yeah, yeah. the fact that they probably didn't pull in decent ratings. Mm. The rental figures probably weren't that great. The toys no. tanked, mm. um, but. Yeah, it's it, it's a shame they chose to end with this one. They should have just lumped it in the middle and then saved a real banger for the ending, especially as Teenage Caveman was the, the last one to be filmed. Yeah. But obviously I can't imagine them using that as leverage <laughs> with, with HBO to give them a second series, yeah. especially when Stan Winston's not uh, not got his name on it. Um, but no, I think they... It, for people who you know, we, we fetishize tales from the crypt, mm. um, masters of horror. Yeah, I think this is a little mini series of mm. inter interconnected, uh, well, creature features. Yeah, I think it it work together. Watch it, you know, binging them all at once. Mm. As it stands, I think you can purchase a lot of these on Prime Video to stream. Mm. Um, they're not the most inexpensive of things. They're about five ninety nine, six ninety nine to own. Or if you want physical media copies of them on DVD, you can purchase four out of five for less than two or three pounds. But she mm. creature, she creature is going for a premium. That's about eight or nine yeah. pounds, isn't it? I think uh, that's a couple of years ago. I can recall bloody disgusting mm. writing something about she creatures, right. and uh, ever since then, DVD prices of it, second hand, out of print, seem to have spiked somewhat. Yeah. You, you know, you're looking to pay about three times as much for that. It's a shame, but it's uh, it's a film that really deserves seeking out. Okay, well done. Another episode in the can. Thank you for listening. Uh, please go out and share our podcast with some friends on uh, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, everywhere like that. And if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help promote and uh, make, uh, make our podcast a little bit more um, prominent in the sea swamp, whichever you choose, of... Uh, <laughs> of uh, of recordings um, thank you for listening uh, we'll see you next time uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well if you're so inclined I'm at the Dave Wayne I am at Matty Budrevich thanks for listening don't forget to check out the schlock and awe page on Instagram well you're welcome to stalk Maddie and Dave on Twitter see you next time on Natural Selection <laughs>